Allow me to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this glorious, humid, hot day. We thank you that we, we have the privilege together, Lord. Uh, we are here for multiple purposes. We love being with one another. It's great to fellowship and encourage one another as long as it's still called today, as the Bible says, instructs us to do. Lord, we are here to worship as we've just done. We're here to hear your word. We're here to hear something specific that will either uh, further our own discipleship, encourage our faith, or actually equip us to go out into what's really an absurd world uh, with really backwards way of thinking in terms of you. Uh, Many in our day and age are claiming to be atheists or at least agnostics and Lord, I just pray that this morning would be impactful, that it would, uh, that would impress on them the overwhelming witness that you have in creation and in other places. And Lord, I, I anticipate you doing something spectacular today, in spite of me, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So essentially what happened, many of you know, I was started off in Montana this uh, last couple of weeks ago, and uh, we have a, both a Lynx Fellowship and we also have a lot of CRD people. We had uh, people come in from Big Fork, four and a half hours or so away, and Missoula, and it was, a large, it was a gathering that we had at one of the country clubs there, and I spoke, and then hopped on a plane, flew to Seattle, then to Portland, and then Bob Thompson picked me up, uh, our ambassador, head of our ambassador program, and we went down to Salem, and and um, I didn't really know what I was going to speak about. I always ask the Lord, what do you want me to speak about? And it, and it was just pretty clear to me why I believe in God. And, and we have different people at various places that are invited, and some know the Lord and some don't. And so it's kind of a compilation of various people and why I believe in God. So I gave the talk there, and I told a little bit about that to Bob, and then Bob liked it. And then we were he drove me to Seattle and spoke a few times up in Seattle and and I said, well, what do, you think, uh, what do you think I should talk about? And he goes, if you don't talk about what you just talked about in Salem up in Seattle, you're going to get out and walk all the way to Seattle. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. So we did that. And then some of the folks just expressed an interest in where is this? Do we have this uh, on video anywhere? And I said, I, we really don't. As the first time I'd really given this compilation of uh, the talk. And they said, well, you know, would you get that on video? So I thought about coming back and do it in the studio and then I thought, well, why not? I'd just be with the family on Sunday, so why don't I just do it on Sunday? So therefore, uh, we're kind of pulling back from Luke chapter 13, and we're going to press on in. And here's the title. Are you ready? Why I Believe in God. Now, some of you may say, well, I, you, you, know, you start to immediately filter, why do I believe in God? I'm curious maybe why Jeff believes in God. It's, it seems obvious to me, or some of you may say, I've, I've kind of been believing in God since I was a child, and it's never really occurred to me that, that I wouldn't believe in God, and yet... I think about some of those things in my own life and where were those intellectual anchors? I use that word all the time because I do have intellectual anchors because I don't practice blind faith. You know, a lot of people, when they think about faith, they just say it's the absence of intellect, it's the absence of reasoning, it's wanting to fill in the blanks when nothing really is there to support your notion. It's just kind of it's a leap. It's a grand leap. And I'm here to tell you today that some of the reasons I believe in God, some of the reasons I want you to believe in God, are very well founded in current science and other things. So there are three basic reasons that I believe in God, although we could go on to this forever. And number one is the creation. We're going to talk about that primarily this morning, uh, the creation, the created order. And then secondly, it's it's the Jewish people, it's Israel. They're very compelling to me because some things have happened in the history of Israel, even in our lifetime, uh, that support uh, massive amounts of prophecy being filled, fulfilled. It was written, you know, uh, thousands of years ago. That's compelling to me. And then for many of you, uh, and for me, obviously, I've been walking with Jesus for quite some time now, and I've entered and engaged in the supernatural realm And what I mean by that is God has intervened so obviously in my life and does so consistently in my life that it's impossible for me to say there's no God. Now, many of you that might even be watching this morning say, well, I don't have that and I don't believe that and that's very subjective. And in many ways that is, but you can't, well, you have to take a bite before you really understand. And the Bible's very clear, taste and see that the Lord is good. There requires, you can say that's a beautiful cake, but I'm never going to take a bite of it and you'll never know how it actually tastes. And and I have tasted of the Lord, and He is good, and He is, 
Well, he's been there in so many places, and we could go down and give testimony to that for hours. We could spend the next 10 years. I mean, well, many of you could, even in the hearing of my voice, we could spend 10 years just talking about all the ways that God's intervened in our life where it's clear and obvious, even to a rational, reasoning, thinking person. But first reason, and the majority of the time I'm going to spend this morning are really based in one thing. I look out, and there is a, there is a universe, and I have to ask the question, I have to ask the question, where did the universe come from? Where did it have its beginning? One of the things I'm going to impress on you this morning also, over and over, is that this, the totality of this narrative best fits my experience for the last 58 years, my experience on the earth. This answers the question. It doesn't answer every question, but it answers the questions that I ask, and it's the very best fit for what I see around me. In terms of evil, in terms of my own existence, in terms of my uh, powers to reason, in terms of my, uh, my thinking about uh, time and space, all those kinds of things, this best fits at my own sense of depravity. And by that, I just mean I just feel something's kind of wrong on the inside of me and needs repair. And I don't think my dog's feeling that way. I, walk, I woke up this morning and I walked in and that big old basset hounded done what it normally does. It just peed right all over the floor. And I stepped over a little fence to keep it from peeing on the rest of the house. And I stepped in and I just, and I know that Basset Hound didn't feel, didn't feel any, any remorse over that big puddle in my, that really got my day off to a lousy start. And yet I was able to overcome it. But I know that Basset Hound was not feeling any remorse. What is it about us that feel, what is it that feels shame? You know, many, many will say, well, we feel shame because of our culture and all the cultural things that happen. If we can just free ourselves of kind of these cultural norms and all that kind of thing, we can be free and not have all the shame that we have. Kind of, I, I will tell you, may I tell you, that is just a lie. And people who have tried that, many of them end up committing suicide. And that's, that's a fact. But first of all, I look out and I look into the created order and I see a universe and it, and it begs the question, how did this begin? Does the Bible have an answer? Well, Genesis 1, verse 1, the very first verse in all the Bible, very simple, in the beginning. Well, first of all, before you go anywhere beyond that, science, current science says there was a beginning. Now, that was a struggle for many. Uh, Einstein struggled with that. There are many, uh, I think of uh, the Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, Weinberg, who said, I really struggled for years. I hated the idea and the concept of a Big Bang because, and he's a, um, a very much an atheist, outspoken atheist, and he said, because it seems to line up so much with what the Bible says about creation. In the beginning, was there a beginning? Well, the Bible says there's a beginning. Current science says there was a beginning. A beginning of what? A beginning not only of the material realm, but also a beginning of time and space itself. That's fascinating to me, that time and space. I can't get that. I've, I've told you before, I cannot get that down into my own DNA. I cannot understand how time and space had a beginning. But Einstein and his theories of uh, general and spe special relativity, I mean, just gives us some insight into, well, time and space have had a beginning, and time can be warped. And I don't know, I just, you know, your brain starts to kind of fuzz out here. But in the beginning, in the beginning, God, in other words, there is a force that started the whole thing, a causal agent, if you will. There is a power, a divine power, that started this, or at least an intentional mind. That's important. Something had to begin the impetus. And you say, well, there's trillions of universes out there. That's this whole thing about, you know, multiverse. That is pure speculation. It might or might not be true, but in the end, you're still going to have to ask, well, what started those trillions of universe. That doesn't escape the fact that something outside of time and space had to be first cause, the power to be causal, and was immaterial, and was non-spatial, and so atemporal, non-spatial, immaterial, and what? And had the power of causation, uh, had some power to get this whole thing started. In the beginning, what? God created intentionally. Creation says denotes intentionality. So what we're talking about, first of all, it doesn't lead us all the way to Jesus. It leads us to an intentional mind. And I'm going to juxtapose the intentional mind with you this morning against what you are left with if you don't believe in an intentional mind, which is pure naturalism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth, just that little abode to which we find ourselves, which life has sprung forth. Science works so hard to find life, and maybe we will. The Bible doesn't say anything about 
life or no life outside of the earth, but we know that life exists here, and the parameters which I'm to describe are so profound that it's overwhelming that I want to, I'm not even using improbable that we're here anymore. It's impossible that we're here, and I'm going to give you some of those staggering figures in just a minute. A non-spatial, atemporal, immaterial cause agent. That's what the Bible describes God as being. Not in time, not in space, immaterial, but the ability to affect change. That's powerful, and that's exactly what the Bible says about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was a beginning. In the beginning, there was an intentional mind. That intentional mind gave us what we see and the complexity of life. I'm, I'm telling you this morning that the, those, those that were writing in a non-scientific world thousands of years ago did not have the kind of resources that we have today to understand the immense complexity. You are let you are you are less with an ability to have an excuse today than you were 3000 years ago many people think well they didn't have science i think of a movie that my wife particularly enjoys and and i do too and there's a little scene in there and this guy is this little guy and he says i don't believe in religion i i don't believe in god i believe in science the whole world gets out there and they think uh, many think that. Well, I don't have to believe in God because science fills in the blank. Science gets us closer to understanding that the, the, the possibility of our existence is zero, functionally zero. I want you to go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Does the Bible posit a God that is non-spatial, atemporal, immaterial, and has the ability to affect change? Well, the Apostle Paul had it absolutely correct as he was influenced by the Holy Spirit in writing these words, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Why don't people see this? Well, Paul says, here's why they don't see it. Now, remember, this was 2,000 years ago, way before the James Webb Telescope, way before Hubble, way before our understanding of uh, DNA and chromosomes and the possibilities of life. I mean, we think we filled in the blanks to negate God. We have unpacked complexity beyond our wildest imagination. Could not be chance. He says this in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's just extraterrestrial, non, that's sky, that's the heavens, the abode of God. It, it's not just, it's what they could see outside of earth when they looked up at the stars. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So first of all, Paul's making a declarative statement. He said, people overlook creation and God's obvious, the, the, the obvious intentional mind behind it. And why do they do it? Because they want to run their lives as they want to run their lives. That's all there is to it. You cannot look up and say, no God. Oh, you can, but why are you doing that? Because of the suppression of what is obvious. It's so obvious. It's more obvious today than it's ever been in the history of mankind. Web, the Webb telescope is showing us things. I mean, imagine now. They used to say, well, there might be a million galaxies out there or whatever, and now two trillion, really? Two trillion with an average of 100 billion stars per galaxy and then even more planets than stars? That's a lot of mass out there. I mean, you've heard, you've heard me talk about this, and again, I say, just for those of you who haven't had to listen in on my background, I'm not, I did stay a holiday in Express last night, so that's why I'm able to kind of go on these different, different roads. But no, think about it. I took my first astrophysics class, and I've been hooked ever since when I was at Rice University. I just, it, it unpacked a world for me that I just didn't, I kind of knew stars were out there, but to talk about black holes and event horizons and and all and, and gravitational forces and time bending and all that and I've been fascinated for almost forty years, uh, you know, from from those college days and I just continue to be fascinated. And now it it draws me towards worshiping God, not away from Him. And here's why. Well, he goes on to say because that which is known about God, well, it's evident within them. For God made it evident. God makes it. Why does every culture? He said, I don't believe in you know Christianity because every culture has some kind of religion. It's just man grasping for God. Why does man grasp for God? Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. How did he do it? Through creation. We look at creation. You don't have to be a 
You don't have to be a savant to look at creation and go, I wonder what started all that. If I lived out on Gilligan's Island and, and, and I'd never seen Mrs. Howe or Mr. Howe or, you know, any of the starlets or, or Gilligan himself, and I'd been on this island for, say, 20 years, I'd never seen indication of any life, and I said, nobody, no planes ever flown over, no nothing, I am... I'm stuck on Gilligan's Island, and, I walk, and I'm walking down the beach one day, and I find a watch. What would be, again, this is the, what philosophers think about in terms of creation, but what, what, the design argument. I see a watch. What am I going to say? Wow, it's amazing over billions of years how, how the sand has just kind of coalesced to create a watch, and it's a timekeeping piece, and, and isn't it amazing? Of course I wouldn't. I would look around, and i go, there's somebody here, or there's somebody that was here, so I'm not the first person here, and I'd want to know what year the watch was made, and you know all that kind of thing. I just, I immediately my mind would go to that, and yet you would have to really suppress the truth in weirdness to not think that there had been somebody there. There was an intentional mind that created that watch. There's not enough time. Fourteen billion years, fine. There's not enough time to create that out of well, out of sand. And they even had. There's even sand and. And things like that on the beach that could have kind of kind of vaguely come together. It's ridiculous. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his now catch this, immaterial, non-spatial, right? What, what, what are we talking about here? Atemporal, immaterial, non-spatial, causal agent. Is any of that found here? Yeah, he said, why? He says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his immateriality and non-spatial quality. So the Bible's the Bible is saying that's what God's like. There are invisible attributes. His eternal power, that's causal agent. He's a causal agent. He has power to do whatever he wants without even having being a material force. Well, Paul's saying that. And his divine nature have been clearly seen. How do we know? It's understood through what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. But why do they have excuses? Because they're they don't want to do God's way. They're they're afraid of the Christian right. They're afraid. And what really angers me in these days is that somehow many people now associate following Jesus with heaven forbid a January sixth insurrection on the Capitol, Christian nationalism, all these other things. Forget it. Mask, no mask. I mean, forget it. This is about following Jesus. It's a it's a very sane thing to do. Because it starts with an intentional mind. And Paul is very explicit when he describes what must be true about why we are here and why life exists. Something had to be, again, outside of time and space to get this whole show going. He goes on to say, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, and they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark, darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. The Bible's very clear, and I'm sorry to say this, maybe you're offended, maybe you're watching on television this morning, whatever. Uh, the Bible's clear. It says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, a fool doesn't say, well, I'm going to really go out and do some due diligence here. I want to discover whether or not there's an intentional mind behind all that. A fool just stops and says, ah, there's no God out there, and he continues on his, in his own self-governance. That's a fact. That's what the Bible says. Now, when I, when I see that, they became futile in their speculations. I wonder what those speculations are based on. Well, that we are awash with ignorance about the created order these days, and I just want to talk to you about a few things here this morning. First of all, uh, when we use, when we talk about God, um, atheists often borrow from biblical thinking and reasoning about God to support the very accusations to make that there is no God. And let me explain. If there is no God, I want you to think in terms of naturalism, no intentional mind, or an intentional mind. Naturalism is just uh, just chaotic, blind forces over billions of years that somehow have come up with what we see here. If that's true, and you are a naturalist or a materialist or someone who doesn't then allow me to say this, you have no grounding for any objective morality. Now, that's very important. You don't even have the basis for 
to be able to say something is good or something is evil. Now, you can argue that. You can stomp up and down. You can raise your hands. You can say there are clear things, and I can say that things are good and evil. You can use all the language you want, but it's no different than if you spilled a little Slurpee over here. If we went out in the theater out there and got a Slurpee and a, one cherry and one Coke, and we were walking in, and we spilled them, and they kind of mixed together, and uh, we're just a mixture together. Um, Frank Turek calls it, we're just meat machines that have evolved over thousands, well, millions of years, and now here we are. And so objective morality, you can say, well, this is important to uh, the advancement of our species, and if we do this, it will help us evolve, and now we've got brains that help us evolve. And you can make all those arguments, but what you cannot do is say that there is objective morality. There is no morality if you're a pure accident. If there's no lawgiver, there are no laws. There are, I think it should be this way, it ought to be this way, I would like for it to be this way. I think it's wrong to torture children. But I really can't base that in anything other than my own, I want it to be this way. That's a naturalist perspective. I have plenty of grounds to believe that it's wrong to torture children. I have plenty of grounds because why? I'm grounded in the giver of all objective morality, the moral one himself, the timeless, the spaceless, the immaterial, the great causal agent. Well, that the God of the Bible gives me great reason and great pause to think, wow, maybe I'm also then accountable to him if I was created with intentionality. Now, let me tell you, if you allow me to tell you, if you lose your moral objectivity, then you also lose justice. We have a world that is crying for justice in every realm. Justice, justice, justice. And rightfully so. The Bible talks about a lot about justice. Micah 6, here's what I desire from you. Allow me to just read this for you. What does he desire? He, he, desire, he, he desires justice, to walk humbly with your God, to love mercy. I mean, he tell, justice is important to God, but not from a naturalistic perspective, because justice is founded in objective morality. So if objectively we can say this is right or this is wrong, then justice comes forth from that very thinking. What else? What about, what about even my ability to reason? You know, atheists talk themselves out of the ability to reason because you can't trust yourself because you're just a cosmic accident driven by blind forces over millions of years, and you are programmed to, well, not for, to access knowledge, but to advance the species. I can't even trust what I'm thinking. Therefore, it's not reasoning. It's blind forces driven by physical laws that force me into a place of behavior and thinking to advance the species. Forget truth. There's nothing in you. Say you're going to jump in, a, in front of a bullet for someone. There's nothing in Darwinian evolution, the, you know, this idea and I'm not, I'm not speaking against evolution. I'm, I'm speaking against non-theistic evolution. I'm really not making a case for or against evolution here this morning. What I'm making a case for is that blind forces do not lead you to, well, being able to justify even believing your own thoughts. They don't give you that latitude. The thoughts you have are for one purpose, and that's to advance the species. Because that's how these blind forces and these physical laws work. Let me ask another question. Where do the physical laws come from? What about the four fundamental forces or any of Newtonian classic physics or any of the quantum, you know, things that we talk about? Where, where, are, all these, where are all these laws come from? I heard a, a well-known atheist on YouTube one time. He said, that's what I struggle with the most is the idea, where did the physical laws come from? <clears throat> if the four fundamental forces that we'll talk about in a minute strong and weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, gravity. If all those things were established, say, 14, science says about 14 billion years ago in the first, are you ready for this? One millionth of a second. How they determine that, I don't know. One millionth of a second after that explosion of the great singularity, all these forces have been unchanged, unfazed, undeterred for 14 billion years. Where do those... Random material doesn't just obey laws? Some would say it does. Explain how. Where do those physical laws come from? They're a reflection of the orderliness of God. Well, my Bible tells me that, but as a naturalist, you struggle with that. 
What about beauty and love and all those kinds of things? Ah, just chemical reactions that are happening in your brain. See, I, this gives me ground to say I love Laura, and this is love. 1 Corinthians 13 describes love and all those different kind of things. And I feel emotions, but I also have commitment and all these other kinds of things. Okay, great. I have, I have founding for being able to say that. Naturalism has nothing. I just have chemical reactions. We, Laura and I celebrated our 29th anniversary here just recently on July 14th. I was on the road. We celebrated it when I got back. And 29 years of being together. And I am so glad that those who write the Hallmark cards are not pure, raging naturalists. I'm so glad that the chemical reactions in my own brain were, were programmed in such a way that when I saw you and my desire to procreate, we hooked up. Have a nice day. Happy 29th. I'm so happy. I, don't hire a naturalist at Hallmark. Romance, beauty, <clears throat> being in Montana and being in Seattle, some of these gorgeous places. I was just, and I, I just love, you know, Bozeman, and we're looking up in the mountains, and we're up in the, I just, I'm a mountain guy. Many of you know that. I talk about it all the time. I'm most at peace when I see the Rockies during the summer, not necessarily during the winter, but during the summer. A little river, I mean, just being near a river to me is just right in the middle of God's creation, and it is nothing. It's nothing. It's just blind forces, and I have certain pre-programmed, ancient things that go on in my mind, and so it's not really beautiful. It's just my perception of beauty. What about my own identity? I think I'm a person. Naturalism says you can have all that you want, consciousness and this and that. Is you know, real identity? What about purpose and what about meaning and nothing? You can, you can talk... But we know psychologically that people that don't sense that they don't have any purpose, uh, they really struggle to go on in life without even committing suicide, without sensing they have any purpose. You see that all the time with couples. They're, they're together 50, 60, 70, 80 years or whatever, and then someone dies, and then the, within an hour, you read this all the time, and then the other spouse dies. How does that happen? They were the meaning and the purpose, and when that went away, they just they quit breathing themselves. It happens all the time. Naturalism gives you no hope for meaning or purpose. You can create it. You can say, hey, I'm going to live in this delusional lie because if I don't live in this delusional lie, I might as well just, well, take my own life. And so we live this lie, but deep down we're like, but it really doesn't mean anything. At some point, the sun's going to burn out. And uh, or a meteor is going to hit us or something's going to happen or we're going to blow each other up and annihilation is the only end. And I can say that's very meaningful. Here was your purpose in life. What for what? Ultimately to be annihilated with no hope of eternality or anything else. Can you, are you able to live like that? Well, no wonder we have drinking problems and drug problems and, and materialistic things and we just go from thing to thing to thing to well, to dampen the voice in the back of our head that says this is, not a, uh, this is not an accident. I'm impressed that all these things, and let me finish with this just as it relates to what atheists often draw off. My narrative and your narrative, if you're believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we will get to Jesus, but as I look at this, it gives, it's the best fit for what I experience on the earth. It gives me an understanding of evil. It gives me an understanding of all these things or even the ability to call it evil. The height of absurdity to me is that, and many I could quote, I could have taken much time to go into many of those who are in the scientific community and are pure naturalists and they will tell you you have no free will. It is not your will to be here. It is not your will to continue to watch this. It is not your will. It was not your will to marry your maid. It was not your This theater was all, all this that you see in the created order, man-created order, human-created order, is pure, well, it's just physics, playing out over billions of years, and, and blind forces, brute forces that, well, you, you think you have free will, but you don't. Now, to me... At some point, that's going to become clear. We're going to hear that trumpet sound. Jesus is going to return, or I'm going to die and be in front of the creator of all this, this intentional mind. And at that moment, I would go, how could I possibly have believed the absurdity of not even having free will? It's ridiculous. Somebody has to stand up and say, naturalism, no God, no intentional mind. It's convenient because we want to live like we want to live. But, well, in fact, I got no free will. 
fatalism. Then why do you put why do we put anybody in jail? Why do we why is there any why why is there the IRS? Why is there anything out there? Because I have no control over anything I do. That does not square with my human experience. It's just an illusion you have, Jeff. No. It's so biblically founded. What does the Bible say? Today is the day of the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's choice. Doesn't say, well, blind forces will lead you down a road one day. Now, I'm not, you know, this gets a little hairy when you talk about the sovereignty of God and that all things, and I don't know how these two things are paired, and I do believe in the sovereignty of God, but I absolutely believe that I do have free will. And I think it's crazy to think I don't. So I'm going to decide right now whether I'm going to finish this sermon or I'm going to get up here and uh, light my hair on fire and run around on stage. Let me see. Hmm. I don't have a choice. I'm sorry, folks. Do you have a lighter, Linda? I mean, it's just crazy that all this was in the cards at that moment that that singularity exploded faster than even the speed of light. No free will, no, no beauty, no love, no meaning, no purpose, no moral objectivity, no justice. Quit arguing for justice if you're a naturalist. I'm going to talk about the next thing, and this is called fine-tuning. Again, I have spoken on this at various points, fine-tuning to the point of absurdity. We are here. It's not a 50-50 chance. You know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I don't go to Las Vegas, there are many reasons I don't. Laura can't stand Las Vegas. She doesn't want to be anywhere near Las Vegas. We have to drive away. No, we, we drive through it, but on our way up to the Rockies to see God's glorious creation. But, you know, one of the reasons is I don't want to lose my money. I know over time the house is going to get it. Now, when you look at some of those games, I was looking at it even this morning. Let's look at some of those games and you look at the odds. The, one of the closest things you can get to of all the games, many of you may know, Blackjack. Blackjack, if you're an expert, expert player, the house only has a, a half of 1% advantage over you, but they still have an advantage over you. You can be the most expert player, and if you play enough, over time, you're going to lose money. And, and you don't think Las Vegas knows that. What do you think built all these multi-billion dollar buildings up and down the strip and all these acts and everything? Why? Most people aren't expert, expert players, so their odds even, you know, are even worse against the house. But the house knows they're going to win against the most expert player, unless they're card counters or something, uh, a half of 1%. I read roulette is the house advantage is about 6%, which is one of the worst. They have about a 6%. 6%. Craps that can range anywhere from an even bet. Believe it or not, the house is about even on some bets. I don't even know anything about craps. It seems like a bunch of you know what to me. Oh, sorry. But <laughs> the craps table, they said some bets at various points during the game are even, and then at some point the house has almost 17% advantage over you, 17%. So allow me to say that if you go to Las Vegas and you go enough, and the best thing for Las Vegas is you for, go, for you to go once and come home a winner because you're going to be that. Slots or, you know, I mean, the house has an advantage, but it's actually fairly small. I have chosen not to bet my financial future on Las Vegas. You say, well, that's pretty smart. People bet their eternal destinies against the odds that I'm about to describe to you. And I'm not even going to go into the fullness of it. I'm just going to show you a few things in the fine-tuning argument. In 1973, a guy by the name of Brandon Carter stood up before a symposium of sciences and proposed what he called the anthropic principle. And that anthropic principle is the, our very existence is so fine-tuned that we really, the odds of us being here are really so minuscule as to say it's impossible that we are here. The, the Goldilocks zone, our distance from the sun, our, all, I mean, we could just go on and on and on, the properties of water and just, and I'm just going to, but now I'm just going to name a few and I'm going to give you some staggering and it's even different than one half of 1% odds. As you know, our, our galaxy is about 93 billion light years across. 
photons or waves, whatever light is, photon packets or waves, the wave-particle duality travels at 186,000 miles a second, travels 6 trillion miles in one year, and it would take 6 trillion miles in one year and would take 93 billion years for light to start at one end of our universe and go to the other. Now, did you hear that? At 6 trillion miles a year, it's still going to take 93 billion years. Light travels about seven or eight times around the earth in one second. Now, that is moving, the speed of light. The immensity of that I cannot begin to even digest. Now, just to give you perspective on when I say 10 to the 50th power or 10 to the 60th power or whatever, how many atoms do you think are in the entire universe? That's 2 trillion galaxies that we know of, 100 billion stars per galaxy, plus all the planets. Every bit of particle, every particle in the entire universe is composed of atoms. How many atoms in the entire universe? That's a lot. Would you agree? 10 to the 80th power atoms in the entire universe. I just want you to know how, how large 10 to the 80th power is. How many cells do you think are in your body? I've asked as I ask, as some people say, a billion or a hundred million cells, just the cells. I'm not talking atomic level, just the cells. Did you know on average is about 37 trillion cells in a human body? 37 trillion cells. How many atoms in the entire universe? 10 to the 80th. How many cells in your, how many atoms in one cell? I just, I need, need you to understand, try, you can't understand, try to get these. How many atoms in one cell, if you have 37 trillion cells in your body, how many atoms in one cell of your body? 100 trillion atoms in one cell in your body and you have 37 trillion. So do you have a lot of atoms in your body? A lot of atoms raging around in your body. All the atoms in the entire observable universe, not even including dark energy or dark matter or whatever, all the atoms in the observable universe 10 to the 80. Can you, can you at least agree with me? Will you agree with me that 10 to the 80 is a big number? All the atoms in the known observable universe 10 to the 80th power. Now let's go into a few odds. There are four fundamental forces that hold you together that are affecting you today, whether you're aware of it or not. That's a strong and weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity. Gravity, we're pretty aware of. We see the guys kind of bouncing on the moon. Boing, boing, boing. Gravity is decreased. Why? Moon is smaller than the earth. Gravity, okay, I can handle that. What about electromagnetism? Well, that's the force that allows, you have to understand fundamental elements, and you're made up, your body's at least of 22 elements, and you know the periodic table and all that, and how important iron and all these different elements are to your body. Elements are formed when electrons are able to jump out of their orbit and jump to another atom, and that's the electromagnetic force. If it was too strong, we're going to talk Goldilocks here, if it was just a little bit stronger, then we would still only have hydrogen. We would have not the formation of all the, well, and no life would exist. Following me so far? Electromagnetism is the force that is not too strong, but is strong enough to hold, uh, well, the elements together once they're, it's even so that when they don't jump and we have nothing but hydrogen, which is only a single, only sing, a single element, it's an element with only one electron, right? So we get, we get this picture, but most have multiple electrons. So that's electromagnetism. What about gravity? Uh, so you take electromagnetism if it's just a little stronger gravity. So we, these two forces, now I'm going to talk to you about the ratio between these two forces and why, that, why is that important, how to calibrate that ratio. Because, well, if you didn't have stars, think about this. If you didn't have supergiant stars, which, by the way, finally explode into a supernova. I think we have a picture of a supernova up here. A supernova explosion is... And it blows. I don't think that's a picture of a supernova, but it might be. But we have a supernova picture, and it's like these... And these supergiants, sometimes 10 times the size of our sun. Our sun, we can fit a million Earths inside our sun. That's how large the sun is. The sun is 865,000 miles in diameter. That's how big the sun is. It's huge. 10 times larger the supergiants. And the supergiants need to be perfectly calibrated 
with, with this gravity and electromagnetism to function. If we didn't have the supergiants, guess what? They're not enough gravity to form iron, and iron is what goes into your body and your, every animal and plant's DNA and forms hemoglobin, and if you don't have hemoglobin, you, well, you don't have life. We didn't have supergiants, and we didn't have supergiants that exploded in supernova, and what happened? It seeded the whole galaxy with element like iron. But we don't know that. They didn't know that. Paul didn't know that. But now we know that. Or a medium-sized star or smaller stars. That ratio between gravity and electromagnetism perfectly calibrated. How perfectly calibrated? One in 10 to the 40th difference and no life exists. I just told you how many atoms were in in the observable universe. 10 to the 40th power. One in 10 to the 40th. Just kind of... That's so tiny, a shift in that ratio, and no life exists. No hemoglobin, no, no iron, no, no. Or why is our sun so important? Because it, it doesn't explode in a supernova. It just burns out over billions of years so that life can exist. So we need small stars, we need medium-sized stars, and we need supergiants, otherwise life doesn't exist. Oh, blind forces of physical causality. We're so lucky. Christopher Hitchens and many others, raging atheists, Christopher Hitchens now dead, said that his biggest struggle thinking about a divine mind was, well, in fact, the anthropic principle or what's called fine-tuning of the universe. You can't argue against these numbers. 10 to the 40th, 1 in 10 to the 40th difference in that ratio between those two fundamental forces, no life exists. I'm going to give you something even more staggering. Did you know that the total mass in our entire universe, that 10 to the 80th, if it was different just fractionally, then the universe would have expanded too quickly. This is science telling us this. This isn't, you know, just some random guy that's made. This is current science. The expansion of the universe would have happened too quickly and life wouldn't exist because it would just be random dust scattered all over the, all over the cosmos. And because the gravity wasn't, it couldn't have been strong enough to bring these forces and these gases together that eventually create, well, planets and stars and all the other things that we see. But if it was a little bit stronger, then the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. And, well, life wouldn't exist if that had happened. How much mass? 10 to the 80th atoms in the universe, how much mass difference, according to Caltech physicist Hugh Ross, how much difference in mass in our total universe, and we know the total amount of mass. Believe it or not, we can cal- I don't know how they calculate that, but it's extraordinary to me. Are you ready? Not a galaxy, which would be, in my opinion, very extraordinary since there are two trillion galaxies. Are you ready for this? This is the most preposterous thing you're going to hear all day. One dime's worth, the weight of a dime, Wish I'd have brought one. I could have pulled it out. Flip it up. One dime. Now you see, that's the stupidest thing. That's fairy tale. That's science, current science. One dime difference in the total mass in the entire universe, and it would have, it would have been too strong or too weak. That's how fine-tuned the universe is. These blind forces of cosmic chance. Hmm. Hoo-wee. And if that's not staggering enough, what about the energy density called the cosmological constant? If that was different in 1 to the 10 to the 120th power, life would cease to exist or would have never existed in the first place. Now, by the time you get to... Are are these numbers starting to pile up on you? 10 to the 40th power in Eric Metaxas' new book, which he outlines a lot of this, if you'd like to read it, or Frank Turek. I mean, I've read this stuff for years. These are, current, these are some books that have been written, written even in the last couple of years. As we go along, that's just staggering. Well, guess what? Then you have to multiply all those factors together to get, finally, what are the odds of life existing? And we only touched on a few of them. Because now they all have to be perfectly precise to fit. Are you starting to get the numbers here? Why do I believe in God? Because there's no other explanation for an intentional mind. Zero. Functionally zero. 
This is like winning the Powerball lottery a million times plus in a row. This is the kind of odds we're talking about, and even exceeding that. And I won't bet my financial future because, well, the blackjack, I could learn to play and become a very efficient professional blackjack player, and I know the house is going to beat me over time with one half of 1% advantage. But I'm going to risk my entire eternal destiny that there's not an eternal, intentional mind that's immaterial, non-spatial, atemporal, and has the ability to affect change. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to do any due diligence on that because, well, I'm feeling lucky today. I'm sorry. It's absurd. It is absurd. These are the fine-tuning arguments. Why else do I believe in God? That's just a little bit on the created order. Why else do I believe in God? Because Israel. Israel's still here. You know, most religions are atemporal. They just said uh, some guy goes away into a cave and he comes out and he says, this is what God's all about. And they're not, they're not embedded in time and space. The whole story here starts. And you say, well, it's kind of an undateable past once you go through until you, you know, kind of get into Genesis maybe 12 with Abraham. I mean, you could maybe date a little bit before that. But then you have historical, I mean, and this is being confirmed over and over and over. And many of you have been with me to Israel before, and every year there's something new and something profound. I know we're a little over time, but please let me finish this. may have to be a two-parter on the, on, the, on the website, but they have a recent discovery on Mount Ebal that confirms Moses. Is, this, is just, this is constant. This is one of the great finds even in the last hundred years other than the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they had argued for years that Moses wasn't during the time. If it was, it was written by a later author that was always constructed. The same arguments they made about King David. King David didn't exist. He was never a thing. He was just a mythological character in Israel until they found a steely in northern Israel that says, King David. Pontius Pilate and this, he didn't want the, you know, prefect over all this and wasn't the governor, blah, 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 until they find a steely that talks about Pontius Pilate. Well, some of you have seen that very, well, it's, a, it's not the actual one, but it's a copy of it, and just over and over, but this is really staggering. You can go out on the One for Israel website that I serve on that seminary board. They talk about it in great detail, but essentially Moses, remember, died on Mount Nebo, and then Caleb and Joshua they cross the Jordan, and they enter in. And the, one of the first things that God asked them to do was stand up on Mount Ebal, which is to this day has no vegetation on just rocks. And then it's south of Mount Gerizim. And the, 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 so half of and he said, build an altar there on Mount Ebal and sacrifice to me. And then they would go, and they would shout out all the curses if they didn't follow the law once they entered the land. And from Mount Ebal, they would shout the curses. Look, there's no vegetation. It was a, it was a beautiful picture of the curse. And from Mount Gerizim, they would shout out the blessings if you lived under the law. And they would shout out one and then back and forth and through the valley. And the hall of Israel would be down in the valley. And they would hear the blessings and the curses from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. But they've argued for years that Moses didn't, wasn't responsible for writing the Pentateuch and da-da-da-da-da. And he was much later and there wasn't an exodus and, you know, just on and on and on. Well, guess what they recently found? They found, well, actually finding this altar was further back, but even more recently, they found, a, they found an altar. And guess what they found at that altar? They found the bones of a bunch of animals deep down embedded in the ground there. And they were all kosher animals. Now, that was very significant because anybody that had been there before, they would have never done that. They would have just, any animal would have done for sacrifice. These were all kosher animals because you couldn't sacrifice an animal to the God of, well, Yahweh. This tetragrammatron, we still don't know what it means, this this. These letters that make up Yahweh, which is Lord. You see it in, in the Hebrew there. But then they guess what they found later? They found some dirt. They had, uh, they'd found the altar. They had dumped a bunch of dirt. But just in recent times, they have this new ability to filter this dirt and find some things. They filter the dirt, and guess what they found? Just this little tiny lead inscription on it, and guess what it had? And they dated it to about 13 to 1,500 years prior to just the time of Moses would have actually lived or Joshua and Caleb during, after Moses died on, Ebal, on Nebo. And guess what they found? Yahweh on this little lead inscription. And guess what else they found? The curse, the curse they call it the curse tablet or whatever they call it. The, the curses from Mount Ebal were found on this little lead thing that dated back to the exact time that the Bible said about Moses. My point is that one of the reasons I believe in God is that, that we are actually in time, not just somebody sitting in a cave saying, this is true about God, this is true about the spiritual realm, this is true. God took the risk of actually embedding himself 
in time and place, encountered Israel, etc. And all the prophecies, I don't have time to get into it, but all the prophecies relating to Israel, even in some of your lifetimes, in 1948, May 15th, the Old Testament said Israel will become a nation again, and they did after almost 2,000 years of non-existence. That's never happened in the history of man. Times 700 times it says, I'm going to return you to your land. They're back in the land. I don't care if you're Reformed or not or whatever your theological background is. That's compelling to me to read in the Old Testament, so I'm going to bring you back to your land. What does that mean to me when I believe in God in an intentional mind? It tells me something. God is not subject to time and space. He knows what's in the future. He declares the end from the beginning. It fits the narrative. How did he know that? As if the Jewish people really had sovereignty over it. It was the Holocaust that actually led to that. And guess what? What would it take for you to believe in God? I'm asking you, what would it take? I mean, we have Holocaust deniers. We have people that go around and say they've been abducted by UFOs. Would this not? What would God have to do to persuade you? Well, if he came into my room, oh, you wouldn't. If you wanted to run your own life, you'd figure out it was a delusional dream. It was a... There, I, always, I ask people, what would it take for you to believe in God? And they give me something, and I'm saying, well, those people and those people and those people, I, I think you could probably talk yourself out of it if he showed right up here in your own room. If I came up and all of a sudden you had a fire start up here and a voice come out and everybody here saw it, well, some of you already believe it might confirm, but if you didn't believe or you were watching, well, that's just theatrics. That's like David Copperfield in Las Vegas. What would it take for you to believe? God says, I've given you the creation so you can believe. I've given you the testimony of Israel. But again, here's the most significant. Not just the prophecies about Jesus, but Jesus inside me. I experience Christ every day. I was talking to somebody yesterday. So I'm so happy about my recovery. We were talking about it. I can't even believe that I'm recovered from alcoholism and personal experience. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that trumps everything for me. I don't care what the next finding is or... Science says this, or there was no Big Bang, and now we think it's this. Look, I, I, I really don't need that now because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. What about you? Or maybe you're watching. My, I'm just begging you. Jesus said, if you'll seek me, you'll find me. Not just an intentional mind. Jesus said something more specific. If you will seek me, you will find me. And I found that to be true. But most people... Don't even start down the road, even though the odds are so staggering against an intentional mind behind all of creation. Well, they want to do it their way. They want to run their lives. They think they're enjoying what they're enjoying now, and they don't want it, well, they don't want it hindered by any great almighty lawgiver that might be out there. So they suppress the knowledge and unrighteousness, and I'm challenging you to do, don't do it. 